songs this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Children, you are now dismissed, and as you're finding your seat, please say hello to the person next to you. If you notice that someone is new or you've not yet met them, please say hello and welcome them to our church service. Well, it is always a joy to worship alongside all of you as we sing praises to our Lord, as we open up the Word of God. It is beautiful to gather together to do so. Let me pray, and then we are going to jump into the second week of our new series on seven churches in the book of Revelation. Last week, we looked at the church in Ephesus. This week, we'll look at the church in Smyrna. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you love us. As we look at ourselves and we think through the lens of the way we live our lives or even our thought life, we, we have to be honest and realize we do not deserve your love. Yet, you sent Christ on the cross and he rose again and conquered Satan's sin and death on our behalf. If we just repent and turn and believe in you, we have eternal life. We thank you for that. The mystery, the power, the reality of that is just enough to make us sit down and, and think through how blessed we are. I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you will fall fresh upon us this morning. As we open up your word, may we read and study and be encouraged to not just learn something new, but to become someone new. And we thank you that that is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. In your name, amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but maybe you've signed up for something where there were some hidden fees or something secret that came out in the end that you looked at and you said, this is not what I signed up for. I know that this happened to me when I went for a, an editable PDF program. And I looked online for this because I needed to edit PDFs all the time. And, and I saw this one program that was $3 a month. And I thought, man, this is the best deal I have ever seen for this editable software. $3 a month. So, of course, I click it without reading the fine, 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 fine print that is very tiny that you just automatically agree to, right? I mean, Apple comes out with new things and says, do you agree to this? If you don't, you can't use your iPhone, and you're just like, yeah, I agree. We have this agree culture now. So I agree to it, and then I get my first bill. Of course, there was $3 a month. But there was a $500 entry fee to utilize this program. I call the program and I say, this is not what I signed up for, right? And they're like, well, you did hit agree. I said, I did not agree to that. How many of you guys have ever experienced something like that where you say, this is not what I signed up for? And, and maybe you don't read fine print like I don't and that's what happened. But as we open up this idea of Smyrna, a church that was persecuted, and we look at our own lives, sometimes 
when we experience trials and tribulations and maybe some persecution along the way in our lives, small as it may be, we might look at that and say, this Christian life is not what I signed up for. I thought it was all unicorns and rainbows and salvation, and that's, that was it, it. I get to be with bodies of believers and spend time reading the Word, and we don't really read the full scope of Scripture where it is promised in Scripture, it's a, it's a promise that we will experience trials and tribulations and persecution. Many people might say, that's not what I signed up for. But if you read the full scope of Scripture, and if you are talking with someone who's mentoring you and teaching you the truth of the gospel, the reality of salvation, they have to couple it with suffering. Because Jesus did himself. He coupled salvation with the promise of suffering. Yay! This is going to be a great sermon. Well, the Western church struggles with the idea of suffering. Because we've had it so easy for so long, it's almost impossible to fathom that suffering can happen. If you were to look at the eschatological study of the book of Revelation, you'll, you'll have heard the words pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation. If you've studied it all, like this idea that, wow, we might be taken up before the main tribulation happens, or we might be taken up in the middle of the tribulation, or we have to suffer through the entirety of tribulation before Christ returns. Did you know that the idea of pre-tribulation was a Western idea that was developed in the 1800s? Never before in all of theological values of eschatology was the issue of pre-tribulation ever, ever understood. And I think the reason why we conveniently in the Western world produce this idea of pre-tribulation is because we got a little bit comfortable with no tribulation. But what ended up happening, I don't know what God's going to do, okay? I don't. But if it is a post-tribulation reality where we are not going to be saved and Christ is not going to return until after we suffer seven years of painful trials, if we have a theology of pre-tribulation, we will never be ready for it. Ever. But if we have a view of post-tribulation and Christ comes before the tribulation, how excited will we be? Amen? Right? So one of the things that John and Christ through John is trying to tell the church in Smyrna is tribulation, suffering, pain will happen. Our deficient theology in pain and persecution can cause our faith to flounder. Okay? Our deficient theology in pain and persecution can cause our faith to flounder. Again, I have no idea what Christ is going to do. I will out myself this morning as a post-tribulationist, and we could probably have a conversation about it, and we might have a disagreement, and that's okay. But I would need to be prepared in and of myself that things are going to get really bad before Christ comes again. Because if things get really bad and I have this view that it's never going to get bad, I'm in a lot of trouble because my heart's not prepared. And Jesus consistently says in his eschatological values of the end times that he uses this, this phrase of preparation over and over and over again. 
All right, I'm done stepping on your toes. We are called to be overcomers. And our deficient theology of suffering does not help us become overcomers. I believe that John, in this passage, in this short clip to the church in Smyrna, gives us an answer to how we can live as overcomers. So if we're to be overcomers, how can we live as overcomers? If you read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, I believe Christ, through John, gives us the answer. So if you have your Bible, please open up to this passage in Revelation, Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Woo! I love that letter to, to the church. Right? This is not an easy passage to wrestle with. And like I said last week, when we look at the book of Revelation, we like to conveniently skip over this passage to the seven churches and move right into all of the, 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 the exciting stuff, right? But we have to rest and settle and unpack what is Christ saying to the church because these letters to the seven churches are also letters to the current church. Smyrna, like Ephesus, was a very important city in the, the, the Greco-Roman world. Smyrna was a wealthy port city, and they, were, they had the, the, the luxury of being safer than most port cities because they had a canal from the ocean come into a landlocked area. So they could, if there was an invasion, they could put chains across the canal and blockade any type of fleet that would try and come in and destroy them. They would have the, the military advantage of protection. Smyrna was an important city for several reasons, for religious reasons and political reasons. If you were to look at the history of Smyrna, Smyrna in the ancient times was still a beautiful city, was destroyed, in 300 years was resurrected again to even deeper flourishing as a city. All of that happened pre-Christ. They were also the one city that began to have Rome worship in the Greco-Roman world. In 25 AD, they were the first city to develop a uh, temple to Roma, the goddess of Rome. And then by, uh, what was it? Uh, no, sorry, that was 195 BC. I apologize. In 25 AD, they put together the very first home of Caesar worship to the statue and temple of, Sirius, of, of Caesar Tiberius. And so they were one of those cities that were beloved by Rome. They were taken care of by Rome. They loved Rome, and they began this worship of Caesar. They were one of the very first ones to do it. 
And so Rome was excited. They loved this city. They poured money and wealth into this city. The city was wealthy, but they were also full of people who hated Christians. They were full of people who hated Christianity because if you weren't bending the knee to Caesar as your God, you were in trouble. And the Jews were there as well. They were the only protected religious class in the entire Greco-Roman world. They were allowed to continue to worship Yahweh, but Christians were not considered Jews anymore. And so their life in Smyrna was literally a living hell. And we're going to unpack with five keys that Christ gives us on how we can be overcomers. As we follow the life of those believers in Smyrna, we will see five keys for ourselves on how we can be overcomers. And the first key is the key of remembrance. Because we must remember, Jesus is the eternal king who is in constant control. He is the eternal king who is in constant control. He calls himself the first and the last. If you were to look at the, uh, the, the Christological, which means the theology of Christ that is exposed to each church that we see in the seven churches, every aspect of Christ that those churches needed to lean into and, and understand were how he opened his letters to each church. And here he says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, which is generally considered to be the pastor or leader of the church, he says, the words of the first and the last. This is Christ speaking to his church that he is the first and the last. If you were in Smyrna during this time, everything in your life would have felt out of control. Chaos reigned in the life of the church in Smyrna. And so when Christ shares with them that I am the first and I am the last, he is saying to them, although you live in chaotic times, I am still ruling and reigning. I am in control. Even when it seems that the enemy is in control, I am am still ruling and reigning. This very specific image would be a powerful reminder to the church in Smyrna. I don't know if you recognize this, but Christ knows exactly what you need in your life. Christ knows exactly what you need to hear as, he open, as we open up the word of God. Christ knows exactly where you are in life and he has the words of truth and life for you. And so no matter what the believers in Smyrna were going through, he was in control. We too can cling to this truth. And despite the overwhelming feeling of chaos, let me challenge you to cling to this. Jesus has not lost control. Jesus has not lost control. Now, if you are a person who says amen, this is the time to say amen. You don't have to be closet ameners in this church, okay? It's okay. He has not lost control. Now, this might seem like one of those really trite statements that you might hear when things are hard and, you know, someone might come alongside and say, Jesus is still in control. Right? And they may say it with a patronizing kind of, 
this is just a quick clip that I'm going to throw at you. But for the church in Smyrna and for us as believers, this is a vital truth that we are to cling to. Because Jesus wins. Jesus on the cross and through resurrection has already defeated Satan's sin and death. And we need to remember he is in control. The second key is the key of recognition because we must recognize Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death when he rose again. Amen. Yes. Because it is absolutely true. And this is, again, a difficult aspect for us to always wrap our minds around because things and circumstances, the chaos that's around us, tends to lead us to forget how powerful Christ is and what Christ has truly done in our lives. Jesus says the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He died and came to life. This is the hope of our salvation. This is what we celebrate every Easter, what we look to every Advent, every time we come to the 40 days of fasting and prayer that Lent lead us to. We live in this anticipation of hope and expectation of His return. Jesus here is reminding the church, I'm in control and remember what I've done. Because no matter what happens in our earthly life, we have a heavenly life to look forward to because he's one. If we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that he died and rose again, and we confess and repent our sins of our sins and turn to him as the risen king, we are saved. Amen. This is something we need to keep in the forefront of our minds. Although when circumstances and the chaos of life have those moments of taking us away, we can forget this. While a commentator says uh, this of this moment, a reminder of Easter is especially, especially meaningful for this congregation which lives in poverty, has encountered intense religious opposition, and even faces imprisonment and martyrdom. When things seem hopeless, let me challenge you to cling to the truth of Easter. Again, this can seem trite, but it's not. When we focus on what Christ has done for us, this is the hope of our salvation. This is the hope that we yearn for, the return of Christ. I don't want to minimize our trials or our tribulations or our sufferings. Because many of you have suffered many things. Many of you may be suffering many things. But clinging to the hope that we have of our salvation is sometimes the only thing that will get us through. And this is what Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna. Remember who I am. Remember I'm in control. Remember what I've done. And that might be the very thin thread that we can hold on to. And this was one of the thin threads that the church in Smyrna held on to. Osborne reminds us, a suffering church like Smyrna needed the assurance that their ultimate future was already secure, even though their present lives were distressing. 
if we are born of Christ, our present lives may be difficult, but the beauty of our salvation is that forever we will live in the security, the safety, and the presence of Jesus. That might be the very thin thread that gets us through, but it's there for us to hold on to. The third key is the key of knowledge. How can we live as overcomers? The truth of who Christ is might not feel like it's enough. And so Christ reveals more of himself to the church in Smyrna. Jesus sees, knows, and understands the full depth of your pain. Jesus sees, knows, and understands the full depth of your pain. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, I know. Now, the wonderful thing about the Bible is that it wasn't written in our finite language that we know as English. English is a very unexpressive language compared to other languages around the globe. And Koine, uh, Koine Greek is one of those beautiful languages which is now sadly dead in conversation, but is alive in the scripture, that gives us one word that has a large definition. A large definition. And so here as we unpack this, we need to understand the full weight of what was happening in Smyrna. We might say, oh yeah, you know, they're going through tribulations and poverty. I've gone through tribulations and poverty. But this is not what John is saying in this passage. If we look at the word for tribulation in Greek, it's thelipsis, and it means pressure, oppression, affliction, crushing weight, trouble, or suffering. The church in Smyrna wasn't just going through a difficult time. They were going through persecution that was a crushing weight, that it was so heavy upon them that they could easily, quickly die, that it was so weighty that they felt like it was so close to being over, that it was heavy, that they, every morning they would wake up and realize, I could die today. I could be in prison today. That it wasn't just a, I wake up and, man, you know, as I do now that I'm almost 40, which for some of you, that's young. Some of you, that's really old. But now that I'm almost 40, I wake up and I'm like, oh, my back hurts. And I'm like, God, why do I have to suffer this way? That's not what the suffering that the church in Smyrna went through. It was a crushing weight. It was painful. It was difficult. At this time, the, the church in Smyrna, Christians all across this Rome, Greco-Roman world, were in such areas of tribulation that they would be beaten, that they would be killed, and some of them were put into the gladiator ring to be eaten by lions. Yay. But here he says to them, I know your tribulation. 
John also uses for poverty the Greek word which is potechia, which means poverty, destitution, beggary, or nothing at all to their name. There are two words in Greek for poverty. One is like, oh, it's a little bit tough, the electricity turned off, which is bad, which is frustrating and painful and difficult. But here, this Greek word means you are so poor, you literally have zero things to your name. You have nothing. And I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And the Greek word for know is oida, and it means an intimate knowledge of, which we'll look at in a moment. The Christians in Smyrna were fighting persecution on two sides. They were fighting it on the Gentile side, and they were fighting it on the Jewish side. Like I said, they were no longer a protected class of Jews. They were no longer considered Jews at all. And so as they worshipped Jesus, as they worshipped Christ as Jews, they were no longer protected in their worship. They could worship Yahweh as Jews, but they were worshiping Jesus. And as they were passionate about worshiping Jesus, they would not bend the knee to Caesar as Lord. You see that idea of Caesar is Lord and we say Jesus is Lord? It was an absolute push in the face of the belief of Caesar worship. The reason why the believers would say Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. And so this was not a safe thing for them to do. But because they believed and knew that Jesus was the only king, Jesus was the only Lord, they would not bend the knee. And because they were no longer protected, they could be beaten, imprisoned, killed, persecuted. They wouldn't be able to have jobs. They were stripped of every single aspect that they could gain money, that they could gain status. They were destitute. They lived in beggary. They had nothing to their name. They were fighting a religious front and a political front. It was not an easy place to live. And you might say, well, (laughs) you know, Ephesus is only 40 miles away. Why didn't they just leave Smyrna and go to Ephesus? I don't know if you've ever tried to travel to Paris, France, and you're poor, but that's what it would be like. You just don't go. You just can't make it. You don't have the capability. That's how destitute, how painful, how difficult it was. There was no way out. But Jesus says, I know your pain. I know your pain. Here we also see this idea of slander. Here's where John mentions the word slander. In Greek, it's blasphemia meaning to revile, denigrate, disrespect, profane, or speech of, or defame of. In this time, because the Jews hated the Christians so much, they began to tell lies about Christians. One of the main lies that the Greco-Roman world believed about Christians is that they were cannibals. What? Have you ever partaken of the body and the blood of Jesus? When they would say we're eating the flesh of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ, that's all that the Jews needed to say that they're eating one another. And it was illegal, as it should be, to be a cannibal in the Greco-Roman world. And so sometimes there would be trumped up charges of slander that they would be taken before the judge and they would say this person is a cannibal. 
Another thing that they were accused of would be atheists. What? How can they be atheists? Because they didn't believe in the pantheon of gods that the Romans, the Romans and the Greeks did. And if you don't believe in their gods, you don't believe in any god. And so they would be trumped up on charges of atheism. And they would not bend the knee to Caesar as Lord. And they chose this poverty. They chose this tribulation. They chose this life that would bring slander to them. Another interesting thing is that the people who were coming to Christ in the city of Smyrna were already part of the lower class. Jesus' truth of death and resurrection, giving new life, Easter was a hopeful message for those who were living in poverty already. But then they would live in destitution and beggary after coming to Christ. Would you be willing to live in destitution for just simply believing in Christ. This is why the Western world wrestles with the idea of persecution and suffering. And we bemoan little things that we're like, oh, the church is under persecution. We have to do this thing. We have to do that thing. If you read Scripture and understand the full picture of suffering, you would never minimize the little, what I would call, inconveniences of the Western world as persecution. It just proves to me that if we're going to whine about little inconveniences, we as the American church are not ready for true tribulation. Are you willing to lose your job for the name of Christ, not for a minor inconvenience, but for the name of Christ? Are you willing to be labeled as a person who could never, ever again have a job because you believe in Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to be a person who has to be the homeless person on the street begging for money just because you believe in the name of Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to be thrown into the gladiator pit who would be murdered without a weapon because you can't fight for yourself or eaten by a lion simply because because you believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Many Americans don't even think that that's a possibility. But it is. And it will be. Now, I want to challenge you guys, if you like fiction books or historical fiction books, there's a, a, a series of books called The Mark of the Lion. Now, I don't like to promote stuff, but if you were to understand the full weight of what's going on in the early church's life when it comes to persecution, that book, that series of books will open your eyes to the full weight of what was going on. It's a, it's a historical fiction. It uses all kinds of different fictional characters, but I tell you, it is a very impeccably researched view of what the early church went through. Into this story of their tribulation, of their poverty and their slander, John again says, the Lord sees, knows, and understands what you're going through. Again, the word for know here in Greek is oida, and it means to see, to understand, or to be intimately acquainted with. Christ is walking with them because he walked before them in suffering. We look at what Christ has done for us. He died, he bled, he was beaten, he was crucified. And if we are to imitate Christ, 
That means we embrace the cross. Do you know that? That's not one of those amen statements, right? <laughs> but it's true. We are to embrace the cross. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it promises the truth that Christ knows, sees, and understands your suffering. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't care what you're going through as you suffer and you struggle. I do care, but it doesn't matter what you're going through because Jesus is intimately acquainted with your pain because he's in it with you. No matter how deep it is, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, which we all wrestle through deep suffering, some of you more than others, and I don't want to minimize that, but I want you to understand, as Christ was telling the church in Smyrna, I'm in it with you. No matter what you're going through, Christ experienced it as well. He experienced betrayal, abuse, suffering. He was spit on. His beard was plucked out. He was punched in the face. He was just totally suffered for you and for me. He understands your pain. And that is the hope where we say, Christ, I know you are in it with me. Let me feel your presence so that these circumstances don't crush me. So that this suffering doesn't crush me. Let me see how some way this suffering can turn for your good. Even though in the midst of it, I don't believe that there's anything good that can come out of this. Let me at least feel your presence with me. Let me at least feel your presence with me. You see, Christ doesn't just sympathize, which is the English translation of this Greek word. He empathizes because he is in it with you. Jesus is intimately acquainted with your pain because he's in it with you. I remember when I was a little kid, my parents in the house, in our parsonage, they had this huge plaque of the footsteps poem. How many of you guys remember the footsteps poem, right? And, and it's just, it, it, sometimes as you look at it as a kid, you're like, oh, that's really cool. There's footprints on the sand. But as an adult, when you go through pain and suffering, and the poem essentially, for those of you who are unaware of it, talks about how a person was frustrated that when times of suffering and pain were in their life, they only saw one step, one set of footsteps, and they thought, God, you left me. I was all alone. Jesus, why would you make me walk on the beach of suffering alone? And he said, my child, the, the reason why there's one set of footsteps is because I was carrying you through it. Whoa. Smyrna, they believed it. They understood that God, Christ himself, understood and was acquainted with their pain because he was in it with them. Here's the reality of life. Whether you are a persecuted Christian in China or a person who lives in America right now here in Indiana, you, here's the truth of life. 
you are either going into a time of trial and tribulation, you are either in a time of trial and tribulation, or you are coming out of a time of trial and tribulation. <laughs> Yay! There's so many yays in this passage. But it's true, and we need to remember. Many people, we might think, no one understands my pain. Jesus does. He does. And he sees it. He's not unaware. He's not ignoring your pain. The fourth key is the key of preparation. And this is the biggest yay of the entire passage. We are to be fearlessly prepared for an increase in persecution. <laughs> John, after encouraging them through their persecution and, and saying, you guys are doing a great job, remember that Christ is with you. Live this life that despite what's happening, He's with you. He's the conqueror. Then He goes, hey, it's been bad, but be ready for it to continue being bad. Also, it's going to get worse. But don't be afraid. I'm sure that as they were reading this, they were all celebrating. They were popping fireworks, and they're like, yes, it's going to get worse. <laughs> no, that's not how they reacted. You know, I think at first they were like, seriously, Jesus? How can it get worse? How can it possibly get worse. This was not easy for them to hear. But what Jesus essentially is saying in this to them is that yes, it will get worse, but you can walk fearlessly into what will get worse because the time is short. Ten days. Now, it didn't mean a literal ten days because we know that 60 years later, someone else died from Smyrna, who I will share in a moment. They walked through a time of trial and persecution for centuries in Smyrna. But what he's saying to them is that your time on earth is short, but heaven is forever. You will have the crown of life when you come. Patterson, a great commentary, says this, and he says it way better than I could about the crown of life. The crown promised here is the Stephanos, or the victor's crown, as opposed to the diadema or diadem. The Stephanos was not worn by royalty, at least not as a sign of their position, but rather was awarded to the athlete who won an athletic event. In other words, it was a winner's crown. And the Smyrnians are invited to see themselves, whatever their sufferings, not as losers, but as winners. Because, point eight, suffering can serve to strengthen the believer's faithfulness and fearlessness. We see this in James 1, 2 through 4, where James says, I promise you, church, you will suffer. But your suffering and your pain will make you stronger. Your suffering and your pain will bring about perseverance. And perseverance will finish its work with an eternal truth, the promise of heaven. Suffering can and will strengthen the believer's 
faithfulness and fearlessness. And this is why we struggle in the Western world. We have a deficient theology of suffering. It is lacking. In most evangelistic movements, I'm not knocking them, I'm not saying that people don't come to true faith, but in those movements, they generally say, you're messed up, you need a Savior, Jesus is your Savior, accept Him, confess and repent, amen. But they don't warn those people of what that actually means for the rest of their life. That it will be difficult. Christ is our Savior. Amen. Hallelujah. But that doesn't mean that life is now going to be a cloud of unicorns and rainbows where we just sit back, relax, drink Mai Tais, and wait for heaven to come. That's not the way it will be. A full scope of the gospel is that, yes, we are saved. That we move into this beautiful reality. But also there will be pain and suffering and trials and persecution. And we look at this future promise of persecution for the church in Smyrna. And what I don't think we often do is we don't often personalize it to ourselves. We don't often personalize it to the church in general. Because the scripture promises, no matter how long it's going to take, that every, that means every, all, right in scripture when we see the word all, the Greek means all, (laughs) every believer will experience persecution at some point. Now that might be generations away from the American church, and we might see small sufferings, but there will come a day, the Bible promises, where each and every one of us will have a gun to our heads. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. Then you're dead. You might not experience that in your life, but you need to be prepared for it. Because it's coming. I don't know when. Could be tomorrow. Could be two centuries from now. But if we are people who are prepared for it, it will not take us by surprise, and we will not walk away from Christ in those moments. Are we ready? Do we have a theology of suffering that helps us? And I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. I'm trying to say, hey, We have a king who can prepare us for fearless living. We don't have to be afraid. It's not doom and gloom for the believer. When we ask, I know I'm going a little over time, but this is important. When we say, Lord Jesus, come again, you know what we're asking for before he comes? Pain and suffering. That's the truth of eschatological values of Scripture. We need to be prepared for it. The Smyrnians did not give up. Even in 155 A.D., which is 60 years later, we see the great bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, refusing to bend the knee to Caesar as Lord, and he was killed. Polycarp, we know his reading. We have writings of him even today. We see the the powerful theological mind that this man had, and he did not bend the knee. He was from Smyrna. He lived his entire life he said in ministry, it could have been 86 years old or he could have been 86 years in ministry. We don't really know how old he was, particularly in ministry. But we do know that for a long time of his life, he suffered persecution and pain and eventually martyred him. But we can't do this alone. So the fifth and final key is the key of empowerment. 
Seek the Spirit's empowerment to faithfully endure trials and tribulations of life. There are people in our congregation who are going through some really serious trials and tribulations, questions that they don't have answers to for the future, difficult things that are going on and things that are difficult that are coming in the future. I know, because I have conversations with you. But the cling, clinging hope that these people are holding on to is the truth of Christ's understanding, the hope of their future assurance, and leaning on and surrendering to the Holy Spirit to get them through. To do this, like we said last week, we need the Holy Spirit because we cannot faithfully withstand life's trials and tribulations without the Spirit. We can't do it on our own. Because as humans, we want to be comfortable. I mean, sometimes we want to be so comfortable that if it's three degrees too cold in our house, we don't care if we're paying the extra $5. We bump it up so that I can walk around in shorts and a t-shirt. That's how much we like comfort. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And finally, let me just give you this image of the church in Smyrna, where it says that they will have the Stephanos, the crown of victory. He's promising them that when they walk into heaven, the believers will cheer and celebrate and worship Christ for their ability to walk through that pain. That's a beautiful image. May we be people who live as overcomers. It's not easy. The Christian life was never promised to be easy. But we can get through anything the enemy tries to throw at us because we have Christ who understands us and the Spirit who empowers us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that we can open up the Word and be challenged, convicted, and transformed. I pray that these truths will go deep into our soul so that when we are going into or in the midst of or coming out of trials and tribulations and sufferings, that we will remember that you are in control, that you are the king. You conquered Satan's sin and death, and you understand us. And may we surrender to the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. In your name, amen.